Welcome to Fresh Cut Grass, light conversation with turf grass professionals from across the turf industry, with your hosts, Jeff Fowler and Tanner DelVal. Hello and welcome to this episode of Fresh Cut Grass. I'm Jeff Fowler, your co-host for today, and with me as always, Tanner Delval. Tanner, welcome. Glad to be here. Are you uh, are you folks getting dry out there? Um, no, we had some good heavy rain at the beginning of last week, and um, we're still in pretty good shape. Um, this week is not supposed to have any rain at all in the forecast, so um, we'll see what we have at the end of the week. Yeah, I visited a field uh, at the end of last week um, down in Berks County, and there were hot spots all over the field, um, like what you would see in July. Uh, I'm seeing now, which I said to the turf manager, you folks dry or what? And he's like, yeah, we have like gotten like no rain in like two and a half weeks. Wow. And now I, I, it looks like the temperatures are going to go up. Um, we're going to be getting up into the mid to high upper 80s. So I I think we're in need of some rain. I mean, the weather is great right now, but uh, we are starting to need some rain here. Yeah, the the, um, the farmers probably aren't looking for rain right now um, so they can get everything planted and in the ground. But um, I'm sure they'll take some. Um, they, good farmers never turn away water, right? That's right. So, so our special guest today is Dr. Andy McNitt. Um, who probably needs no introduction to most of our listeners, but um, Andy is um, the uh, person who is in charge of the four-year turfgrass program at Penn State University. But that's not what we're going to talk to Andy about today. Believe it or not, he does have some other skills that we're going to talk to him about today. Um, and that is, we're going to talk about um, top dressing and um overseeding with um, compost and sand and maybe get into a little bit of drainage, um, water kind of thing. But um, the guy that I'm introducing has forgotten more about soil properties than most of us ever thought we needed to know, including this guy that's speaking as well. Dr. McNitt, thank you for being with us and welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Jeff and Tanner. It's always a pleasure to to meet up and talk with you guys. And you're right, I've forgotten pretty much everything I know. So uh, hopefully this is about cartoons and, uh, I don't know, circuses today. Yeah, so, so hopefully before the end of the program today, you remember at least a couple of things um, that we can share. Um, you you other than, prompt me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, so um, we have had endless conversations over the years about um, improving athletic fields and improving um, turf areas in general. And, and one of the things that we've um, come up with is the whole process of top dressing, right? Um, that it, 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 it makes a, a better turf surface. Um, why, why does it do that? Why, why, what, what does top dressing do for the plant that, that makes it better? Well, I think we need to, to, to back up just a second. And I know we're talking about top dressing, but, you know, we talk about it making the, the uh, sports field better. But it's not one of the top three or maybe not even one of the top four things you can do. Right. I mean, your mowing practices, your fertilizer practices, um, 
you know, overseeding and, and some of these other things are way more important than top dressing. But top dressing is something that can really help. And we get a lot. And there seems to be a lot of misconceptions out there about top dressing. Right. Uh, and so we'll get into why it helps or why I think it helps. But, you know, let's first just sort of say, what are we going to top dress with? <clears throat> and if you have a sand based field, we know you're going to top dress with sand. Probably a whole other topic. There aren't that many sand based fields out there. But the, the, the problem is with the with native soil fields. You know, everybody looks and says, well, you know, what do they do at Beaver Stadium? What do they do at Lincoln Financial? Well, they top dress with sand. Maybe I should do that, too. And there's a problem with that, um, potentially. You know, if you mix sand with soil, you think that you're helping it, but you're actually not. And I, I like to describe it to my students as, you know, your, your goal is the same. Your goal is to get air and water in that soil both, right? You want it to percolate, you want good air, and you do that by creating big pores, but you do it differently in sand versus soil. In sand, you're trying to build soil texture, which means you control the size of every particle and compaction doesn't matter, right? We're just gonna throw compaction out. We can compact that sand all day long and we're still gonna have a good balance of air and water. So there we care about the sand sizes. Over on the soil side, you're trying to build soil structure. You're trying to get this particles to aggregate and look like, you know, a whole bunch of grapes. So that's how you're going to get your air and water. And the problem with that is, is that sand doesn't aggregate to any appreciable degree. So that when you add sand in there, <clears throat> you're actually inhibiting the soil's potential to aggregate. And you can actually make things worse. I mean, we think about concrete, right? What is it? Big size particles, medium size particles, and a highly active clay. We mix all three of those together and what's the percolation of concrete? You know, not very good. Um, bricks have 60% sand in them and they don't percolate well either. So sand's expensive. It's heavy, costs a lot to truck. Uh, don't be putting sand on your, on your native soil fields. I mean, there is a caveat to that in that, you know, we can build a sand cap field um, where you have a pure sand layer on top. And that's what you know, push up greens on golf courses do. But that's a whole other level of maintenance that, that the people listening to this have to understand. And if you're having trouble keeping up with mowing, um, now on a sand cap field, every time you hollow time aerate, you've got to pick up those cores and you've got to buy more sand to fill those in. You can never mix the sand with the soil and expect a positive outcome on these high traffic fields. So uh, sand is just not a good way to go. When someone wants to put down top dressing on a field, so we're not going to use sand, the next step would be, do we use like an organic compost, a municipal compost, a leaf compost, topsoil? Should it match something that we already have? Uh, that whole concept of matching probably isn't, uh, isn't applicable here. <clears throat> matching is, again, over on sand. And, you know, you need to be on one side of the road or the other. The dead animals are in the middle of the road, right? So you need to get off to one side or the other. So when you're talking about matching something, that's the sand side. If you've got native soil, what you want to do is, is build those aggregates. And those aggregates are held together with glue. And that glue is essentially organic matter as it breaks down. Um, and that's why peat moss isn't very good because it's so stable, it's not breaking down and creating the glue. So we look at using high quality compost. And my gosh, I've been doing this since I was a county agent in Philadelphia uh, in the 80s and uh, have had great success. I mean, I think it built my career. 
was easy to do consulting trips. You'd go out and you you know kick the tires and wander around, take some soil tests, and in the end, I was like compost. You know, top dress with compost, aerate it seven times, and um, and you'll you'll be good to go. And it really does make a difference. But you're right in that. <clears throat> There's two things that will make uh, top dressing with compost fail. One is you use a poor quality compost. And the second is you use too much. And I understand it's human nature. I'm going to tell you that a quarter of an inch is your target over the whole field. And for a high school football field, that's about 50 cubic yards. And this stuff is light. It's super light. And so you can get 50 yards of this material on one truck. Uh, That will... 50 yards, if you work it out, is slightly less than a quarter of an inch. And I know human nature, you know, hey, we're getting this arranged. We got the equipment here. We got the labor. We're going to do this thing. Let's make sure we have enough. And you put a little too much down. And it's better to be a little light than a little too heavy on this process because what happens if you put too much down, you end up with this layer on the surface of pure organic matter. And uh, now you're trying to seed into it. It's like seeding into a thick thatch layer. It can get hydrophobic. Uh, and the sand, you don't get as good a catch with the seed when you overseed that. So one, uh, don't use too much quarter of an inch max Two, you got to use a quality compost and they're not always easy to find. Uh, we used to have the recycled sewage sludge out of Philadelphia called earth life. I think they've stopped doing that. They've gone 100% to mine reclamation and other applications. Uh, we do have the UAJA compost out of state college, which comes from our uh, wastewater treatment plant. Um, and it's, you know, it's composted biosolids and it's so clean, you can put it on your garden, but you know, in the Southeast part of this state, we have another resource and that's mushroom soil. And we have done, you know, years worth of research on mushroom soil as a top dressing for established turf worked great. A quarter of an inch delivers like, you know, almost one pound of nitrogen with a very similar release pattern to something like neutraline, which is, you know, two thirds fast, one third slow nitrogen. So you got to use a quality compost. You mentioned municipal waste. Um, you know, you got to think about this. Um, you look, you look at municipal waste compost, which is yard clippings and whatnot, and they're giving that away, right? It's free if you live inside the municipality. So how bad must it be if they're, if they're charging for human excrement, right? That costs money to get the human excrement but the yard waste compost is free. What does that say about yard waste compost? Look, it's fine, but it's not very good for the field. And there's a lot of wasted effort there. In the 90s, Landscoot and I did a survey of over 20 municipal yard waste compost facilities in the state. And I mean, they were only averaging like 15% organic matter. So it's not very good. What I like to say is you need a manure, whether that's human or animal, you know, mushroom compost is a lot of horse manure. And then you need a bulking agent in with it, um, like uh, wood chips, or uh, in the case of mushroom soil, it's straw. And uh, we've had great results with that. So two things, don't put too much down and use a high quality uh, compost. I've seen a lot of of compost um, over the years, Um, not as much as you have, but um, I've seen a number of situations where they use poor quality poor quality compost and it just is it makes a mess um, um with municipal waste to get a lot you have potential to get a lot of weed seeds um you know thrown into the mix that never gets hot enough to to kill those um i've seen 
um, some compost that came back high in salts. Um, and actually we worked for a year and a half to get grass to grow in it. So, um, you, you, you really have to make sure that you're using a high quality compost. Um, and it does an incredible job, right? Um, so, Hey, one thing I'll say about salts though, is, you know, mushroom soil has gotten a bad rap over the years on the amount of soluble salts they have, and they do have high soluble salts when you test them. However, the majority of those salts, not all of them, but the majority of those salts come from gypsum. Right. So it's a pretty, you know, it, it, when, you, when we say salt, we all think sodium and it's going to damage the plant. And there's sodium in there. Uh, but, um, you know, most of the uh, soluble salts in mushroom soil is coming from, uh, from gypsum. I mean, we applied it twice per year for four years and never even got tip burn. So... Now, as, t as far as timing, though, we're probably looking not in the summer, right? We're talking about fall, probably in conjunction with some seeding, right? Yeah, and we've had plenty of spring. I mean, I think there's still time here in the spring, but you're going to have to get right on. And, and the, you know, the tricky part is doing it when the turf is actively growing, spring and fall for Pennsylvania, and when it's dry enough that you can aerate afterwards. I mean, we recommend that you put the compost out, then you aerate. And what that does is it brings the heavy soil up on top of the lighter compost so that when you drag it later or hit it with a verticutter, however you're going to break up those cores, you get a better mix. And that's what we want is to get a mix. But I will tell you, uh, UAJA compost used to be sawdust and we it was a great process to put it down first and aerate. <clears throat> now that everybody's switched to wood chips because of pelleted stoves and sawdust is now a commodity, um, you know, you're using half inch tines. They put it through a half inch screen. And sometimes we're getting these wood chips stuck in the aerator. And so uh, some guys are saying, hey, I really want to aerate first, then put the compost down. And it still works. It's not as good, but it still works. Um, so I would rather you try to put the compost down first, then aerate it. But if you get this problem of the wood chips sticking in the aerator um, tines, and you can do it the other way around. Just try to drag it a lot to try to get a good mix. I mean, Jeff's earlier question was, why does this work? <clears throat> One of the reasons I think it works is, um, sure, we're aerating. You're sneaking in some nitrogen. You're getting the cleats up out of the ground a little bit. But I think one thing is, if you put down a quarter of an inch of compost, then hollow tiny aerate, drag it, and mix it all together. I mean, you essentially have a divot mix over the whole field, right? It's like divot mix. And now when you seed into it, you get way better seed catch um, on that. So on the timing, I think now is fine if it's dry enough. And you guys were just saying that it's a little dry. Fall is great, but you usually have your fall sports then. So that kind of, you know, you can't aerate. I kind of like to aerate now where the seasons are just about over and it's not quite summer. Or the other time is, you know, after that last football game, sometimes, you know, after Thanksgiving, it's dry enough that you can go ahead and put it down and aerate. And then... You know, there is a little bit of an off odor. And if you're doing it late in around Thanksgiving, the windows are closed and nobody's catching that. But timing's a little tricky. Equipment's a little tricky. You know, Andy, there's a there's something to be said about what you just went through there. About, oh, 20 years ago, we did a little demonstration for a field day at a local Little League field. We put down three or four different kinds of top dressing. So we use compost, um, calcine clay and topsoil um, as a top dressing. And we shallow tined some of it, we deep tined some of it. And then we went and did all kinds of 
surface hardness and compaction levels and all that stuff that you to look and see if there was a difference. And, you know, the difference that we found was just the sheer act of doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, We, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter whether we deep tined, whether we shallow tined, whether we um, calcined, whether we topsoiled, whether we composted, just doing something made a difference compared to the area that we didn't do anything to. So. Yes, uh, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, when I first started talking compost to Landscoot in the early 90s, he thought that's all of it. What you said is absolutely true, Jeff. He thought that was it. But after we did some trials, he realized, no, there's something extra coming with this compost. And it's not just the nitrogen we accounted for that. But I mean, you can look at what all it does. If you want to look at our website, ssrc.psu.edu, stands for Sports Surface Research Center. .psu.edu. So again, ssrc.psu.edu. We have in there all the studies we did on mushroom soil. And we did a factorial design. So you had every possible combination from nothing to everything. And every time the compost was on there, um, even if it wasn't aerated, we, we saw an advantage, even uh, compared to, you know, straight nitrogen. So. All right. So here's a question. A lot of times, if you're going through the hassle of doing this, you're probably going to be putting some seed down. Um, with these new. Be. 100%. So where in this process do you do seed? It seems like there's different schools of thought here. Do you put some down first, then put the top dressing? Do you top dress, then drag, then seed at the very end? You got any thought on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll t- you know, there's different years, 100 ways to skin a cat. And I can tell you a couple of different ways. I'll tell you, we have had great success pretty much seeding last within a light drag and a roll. You know, you want to roll at the end to put that seed back in good contact with the soil. We've had great success with that. But in the beginning, we played around and we had some luck with, let's broadcast seed 20% of what we're going to put down before we start the process. Then we'll do everything. And then, you know, we'll verticut 40% in each direction afterwards. And I don't know, there might be some advantage to that depending on water and how good you are at putting things down. Um, But if you do a nice job with this, I really don't have a problem. Seeding lasts light drag, roll, and then turn the water on if you're lucky enough to have water or uh, so. Light, light roll. <laughs> yes, light rolling. All you're trying to do is put seed in good contact with the soil. So, you know, we don't need any giant vibratory rollers out there. Just something light. We don't want to, we don't want to go out there and ruin the effects of the aeration. We just want to make good soil to seed contact. There's no need to, no need to call the local paving company listeners and get them to come in to, to roll your field after seeding just a light roll. Yep. I mean, you know, a tow behind a roller that you have sitting around that, um, you know, holds 200 gallons and you only fill it halfway up. So, you know, you had mentioned we're talking about organic materials. What about there are these materials that I see marketed all the time, and I haven't personally performed the research, but they say liquid aeration and humic acid products and put gypsum down. It'll solve all your problems. I mean, you've well, seen. Yeah. So there's a lot of snake oils being sold. And of course, there's always a tiny bit of truth to each of those, but. Each of those has a different story behind it, Tanner. Which one do you want me to talk about first? I don't think we need to delve all the way into that. I just think people should be cautioned about, you know, you can't put a liquid material down and achieve what aeration does. I mean, would you Absolutely agree with that? Not. Yeah. yeah. So everybody's looking for, you know, the silver bullet that, 
that's going to solve their labor issues. But the, really the problem is it's a socioeconomic problem. You need more help so that you can put more butts on seats on mowers. You know, all this other stuff comes later and everyone's like, well, maybe there's some secret formula out there that if we just knew about it, then we wouldn't need another guy. Well, nah, the answer is you need another guy. And there's no such thing as liquid aeration. Um, gypsum only helps uh, in sodic soils, which we don't have in Pennsylvania. You got to go to Arizona to get those. And still, all it does is help flush sodium out. You still need to aerate, you know, to to bring the soil structure back. So, um, yeah, there's really, there's no shortcuts. And you probably can't put enough, I mean, the amount of these materials that require to be refrigerated or, you know, humic acid materials, which there's so many of them on the market now, and I see them marketed as this uh, kind of like a wonder material and you get all this growth stimulation from it. But probably the amount that you're putting down through your sprayer nozzles is like such a drop in the bucket. I mean, would you agree with that? Well, yeah. So, you know, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, I went to Dr. Waddington, who was, you know, my mentor. I said, Hey, what about this humic acid stuff? It looks pretty real. Uh, you know, because it is the glue. Here's the deal. Humic acid is the glue that holds the uh, aggregates together. And in typical Waddington style, he wouldn't answer my question. He gave me a book on humic acids. The whole book was written on humic acids. So you read this and come back and we'll talk. And I read it and humic acid is great stuff. But here's the deal. A typical cornfield, a farmer's cornfield that has about 3.2% organic matter in it, which is kind of an average, I guess, Jeff, you might agree or disagree with. That's kind of a good number for a good cornfield. It's naturally producing humic acid at the rate of 30 to 50,000 times more than an application that you made. Not 30 to 50 times, 30 to 50,000 times more humic acid is being produced by that field naturally than you're spraying on. So, hey, you want cheap humic acid? A quarter of an inch of compost, I haven't calculated how many more times humic acid you're getting out of that. But as that compost breaks down, it's creating humic acid, which is the glue that holds everything together. And rather than some dilute mixture that you're going to spray on, um, why not, uh, you know, just put on a little bit of compost. Listeners, I told, I told you listeners up front that he, for, he forgot more about soil properties than most of us ever thought we needed to know. Our special guest today here at Fresh Cut Grass, Dr. Andy McNitt. Um, it's, it's always good conversation with Dr. McNitt. I always learn something with Andy, um, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but I always learn something. Um, um, and, uh, Andy, while, while we have you, it's, it's not, um, every day we're going to have you on the program while we have you, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do in your, um, with your job other than run the four year program and talk about top dressing, um, Give us a little, introduce yourself, even though we've been talking for 15 or 20 minutes here. What, what do you, I know you work with the NFL and you do all kinds of good stuff. So why don't you tell our listeners about that? Well, okay. So you're after the NFL stuff, I guess. But, um, you know, before we get off of that, I don't just run the four-year program. I also run the entire, we have five programs in world campus that, you know, you can take classes from me and all the other professors. You can get a certificate. Uh, by taking really five classes, you get a Penn State certificate. 
Uh, you can get an advanced certificate, you can get associate's degree, you can get a bachelor's degree, and you can even get a master's degree 100% online. And of course, during COVID, um, you know, a number of our resident students switched to that because they said, if I have to take it online anyway, I might as well switch over to World Campus. The degree does not say you got it through World Campus. It's exactly the same because it's exactly the same courses taught by exactly the same professors. So look at that. Uh, you can go to worldcampus.psu.edu. On the other side of things, yeah, um, I started helping out uh, with uh, Tony Leonard asked me. He, he, he got the groundskeepers of the NFL to form an organization in around 2006 and originally asked me to speak, then asked me to kind of help out with the education. But that has sort of all evolved now and is different. Around 2011, um, the league decided that uh, – you know, they wanted to look at quality of fields and sort of standardize that. So a group of us got together and uh, ended up writing um, certification protocol for all the NFL fields. Then that evolved to the point that Tom Sorensis, who uh, helps with manage the Sports Surface Research Center at Penn State and myself, I helped to administer that program. And Tom is the head lead field certifier um, and goes around and uh, tests fields. He Don Fall at Ross Kirkham. Uh, we have a number of independent inspectors. So I think a lot of people don't realize every NFL field is certified before every game. Most of that certification is done in-house, but then we have independent inspectors who knock on the door to, to say, hey, we want to make sure, you know, your numbers line up with our numbers and, and everything's on the up and up. Uh, so that's fun. And then, of course, you know, as a side business, uh, I do run a soil physical properties lab. Tom and I do, and we help to, to advise and build and do quality control on soils and drainage and sod for uh, a lot of sports field golf courses, but you know, a lot of practice fields in the NFL. So uh, I have fun doing that sort of stuff. And I serve on some other committees um, at the league level. So Yeah, so cool. even, even in your spare time, you mess around with soil. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, mean, I used to have a soil physical properties lab in my basement. Thank God it's now in Tom's. My wife's very happy about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, that's what I do. Got to have to figure out something else when I retire to do, though. I was going to say, you're going to have to find something else to do with your spare time um, other than chase after all the grandkids. And the, um, the kids are all old enough now that you don't have to chase them, although um, – some of them, you know, they leave a lot well, you to be. Know. You have to chase some of them anyway. But then we have uh, we got up to five grandkids so far. Um, it's six children, and we have uh, five grandkids so far. So they come and wear me out. So that's good. You know, I like scotch. I especially like peated scotch. So, you know, I can't get away from sort of the whole organic matter. Uh, <laughs> so that's good. Nice hobby. So... Um, Again, our, our special guest here, Dr. Andy McNitt, um, he did talk about the four-year program, the online, the uh, World Campus program and the certificates and all that stuff. And, and I would encourage um, our, our listeners, um, even if you're um, just looking for a course, um, want to know more about turf diseases or weeds or whatever, check it out. Um, see what you have to do to get yourself enrolled. Um, in a in a program of some sort that we that we offer at Penn State because um, 
we've been doing um, this, this COVID thing for, for the turf people um, being online was, was a pretty easy transition for, for our, our faculty and, and staff because we're teaching everything online. Um, those of you that know, um, we, we had our, my son on here um, on an episode talking about sod on plastic. Um, that's how he finished up his degree. Um, at Penn State was through the world campus and uh, it's been yeah. it's been uh, good for him. I think that's great. And I think, you know, if you're looking for specific information, I think the short courses that extension does and you guys do is where people want to look. You have to realize what I'm talking about is more of a sort of a degree. And so you're going to get, you know, these are credited classes, right. 15 weeks long. Uh, most people find there are a lot more work than they thought they were going to be. Um, and it's more, you know, degree based where you're going to we're going to deep dive these issues and you're going to get a lot of background scientific information. And most most of the students have a very positive experience. But if you're looking for a specific, I want to learn a little bit more about diseases so I can apply it today. I think the extension courses are great. If you want to deep dive that topic and really, you know, spend 15 weeks um, being tested and learning and homework. Uh, it's great, um, but you have to just understand the difference between the two. And yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the uh, other areas that you know we're gonna we can delve into here real quick at the end um, is this whole topic of drainage, which we could talk for weeks and weeks about drainage. But uh, you know, I see a lot of a lot of issues with people. They see a wet spot on a field or an area that is always wet. And I know from taking your course, you know, you need to figure out where the water is coming from and, you know, how you tackle that. I mean, do you have any advice for people with, with that are dealing with a wet area on in, in a grass area, not on an infield? Cause we actually talked about infields okay. in another episode. So, I mean, everybody wants to just put a pipe under the ground and they think that's going to make the water go away. Uh, and it usually doesn't. And so I have to look. I mean, there are some minor wet spots that you may be able to run a pipe to. But the, the problem with a pipe is, you know, most of the time on a sports field, that's a low spot and it's all surface water. And so to get rid of surface water through a pipe, you need to have a coarse aggregate to the surface. So you're going to have to have that sand backfilled the whole way up. As soon as it gets dry, that sand is going to show up. You're going to see that line. Uh, the, you know, the, the, it's going to be yellow grass in there because the sand doesn't hold as much nitrogen. Um, you know, if you've got a lot of drainage problems, the best thing to do is to get that field recrowned. And I know it's a, that's a big expense and it, and it's a hard sell to the administration. Um, but surface drainage needs to be taken care of on the surface. And it's amazing to me. I know we're getting out of time here, but when I go out and look at a field that has a strong crown on it. And don't just lean it left to right, put a crown on it. You want the high wear areas to be high and dry, right? So in a football field, the middle of the field uh, is where the, uh, and the soccer goal mouths, that's where the wear is. You want that to be the highest point in the field and you drain away from it with a crown. It's amazing how poor the maintenance can be on a field with a really solid crown and the field will hang in there. And if you have a soup bowl, which, you know, is inverted and opposite of that, it doesn't matter how good of an agronomist and how much maintenance you have, the field still is a soup bowl. So unfortunately, uh, you know, you put a one and a half percent crown on that thing and uh, and re and redo the field, which is not what anybody wants to hear. It's a tough sell, but that's the right answer. Otherwise, I've seen schools waste two hundred thousand dollars on um, drainage under a field that no water is getting into. Total waste of money. 
The administration doesn't know. They're not in this business. They throw up their hands. They're like, hey, we spent $200,000 on that natural grass field. Didn't work. We might as well spend $700,000 on synthetic. At least we get a guarantee. And so a lot of money wasted on improperly installed drainage. See it Um, all the time. I see it all the time. time. And it is, it is. And I actually have some local fields that, you know, I visit and I, I try to, you know, improve and make them look good and have them safe for, you know, for the kids, but their solution to these low spots is, you know, can you, can we go out there and just dump soil into it, you know, dump, dump that into it. And and you, the amount of soil that is required, they actually put a crown, you can't do it, you know, and they do it. And then it turns into just a muddy mess. Yeah. So when I was younger, Tanner, I thought we could maybe slowly top dress that low spot out over time. That doesn't seem to work either. Um, I mean, unless it's a, a, a low spot that's, you know, eight inches by eight inches, but um, it, it's really difficult to add soil or to top dress over time um, to get that wet spot to go away. You really need to, to regrade that area, um, which, and then probably sod because you don't have time. And you got to go with thick cut sod because you don't have time. All of those things cost a lot of money, but so does a synthetic field. Uh, so, you know, uh, you're getting into a topic that we can go on and on and on about on another show, but I agree. Hey, that, that's, yeah. that's more than one show. That's more <laughs> yeah, than probably. one show. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, so you, the last question I'll have that's related to this conversation is, you know, we get folks that go out and they'll, they'll redo the area around their mounds or they have to buy some sod. And I get the question, if they have access, a lot of times they only have one choice for sod and whatever, whatever sod they can get their hands on, that's it. But if they have a choice, should they get thick cut sod or thin cut sod? So there's a lot, there's a lot behind that question, right? What time of year is it? And when does everybody need to get on that field? So the misnomer that exists in the uh, industry is, Thin cut sod will root faster than thick cut sod, right? And uh, I said, well, it might root faster, but it's not going to root better. And when you bring the thick cut sod in, it's already rooted. Yeah, it's not tacking down below that, but it already has an inch and a half of roots on it that are thick. Um, And so I will tell you that thick cut sod is one of the best insurance policies you're ever going to get. And so how thick does it have to be? Depends on the sport. Is it little leg in front of the mound? hey, maybe you can get away with an inch thick cut sod. If it's the NFL, I want an inch and three quarters, right? And we lay sod down and play on it immediately in the NFL. It doesn't have to root because the sod's so heavy. So um, I would encourage you to get, you know, within reason, an inch, inch and a half. I don't think there's more than that needed. But if it's the fall, it's September, and the Little League's not going to be back till next spring, and you have water, Oh, yeah, you can get standard cut quarter inch sod at that point in time. And, you know, even look around at maybe just getting a sod cutter and going to the foul territory and cutting some sod out on your own and moving it in there. The bad sod you cut out, don't think it's going to replace because it'll all fall apart and you'll have to reseed that area you cut anyway. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I have to talk to major league stadiums about this all the time. It's like, that thick cut sod's what gets you through the first year. I mean, it, it really is. So it, it's a great insurance policy. It's expensive. You got to truck it. You're trucking soil, um, but it's it's a it's a good way to go. Remember this too. Anytime you redo a field, it is never under more scrutiny than 
opening day and that first season, right? That's what everybody wants to see what their money did. It's a first impression. They're going to judge the success of that project very early on. And so if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't want to do this because five years from now, it might cause a problem. They just get through the first year, right? And then we can adjust things and change things. So make sure that they feel like they got a good bang for their buck and a year goes by and they, you know, they begin to forget that and move on to other things. So, and to bring it all the way back to the beginning of what you said, and we talk a lot about all these other practices, but I remember being a student in your class. And one of the most important things you said, if there's one thing you can do for your lawn, it's mowing and mowing often. And I think people should not lose sight of that and how important mowing and mowing practices are. Oh, way more important than anything we talked about today. Right. Like I said at the beginning, and like you said, we're bringing it full circle is mow more often. Right. Fairways are mowed every other day. Greens are mowed, you know, seven days a week or at least six. Beaver Stadium is mowed three times a week, sometimes four. The best thing you can do is get out there and mow. All this other stuff doesn't matter unless you're you're mowing. If you're mowing every 10 days, mow every seven days. If you're mowing every seven days, you know, mow every three days. And, um, and watch the improvement. It's kind of amazing because everything that we talk about after that is going to make the grass grow even faster. And if you can't keep up with mowing now, all the rest of the stuff we're talking about is a moot point. You need to focus on the mowing and get the people out there um, to take to take care of that. Problem. It's absolutely amazing. Even and it's not just a sports field thing. It's for lawns, too. I mean, I see it all the time. We see, you know, I, I have a you know, I do some lawn applications, you know, sometimes and I look at some people and they spend the money on doing these practices, but they mow every 14 days and you go there and the lawn is like pale yellow. It, they're, they're cutting it super low. And it, I'm like, you know, you're, you're putting three, four pounds of N on per year, but it just doesn't look like if you were just to drive by it, you'd be like, that looks like crap. And it's basically all because of mowing practices. So no, I just, yeah. I'm glad that you, you touched on that. Yeah. It's number one. Nitrogen is number two. Seeding is number three. And somewhere down the line, then we get to top dressing and airification. And they're all important, but your limiting factor is probably mowing. You know, we hear the pros talk to you about the most important thing is, is airification. And it is important because your soils are compact. But if you, you know, if you, if you uh, don't have any grass there, airification is not going to make it come back. You're going to have to seed. So seedings, you got to be able to do that. And if you put seed down and it's starving, nitrogen is more important. Right. And if we're going to put all that nitrogen down and we can't mow, as you just um, as you just described, it's still not going to be good. So starts with mowing. You got to You got to do that right first. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, just a reminder for our special or for our listeners, our special guest today was Dr. Andy McNitt from Penn State University. Andy, thanks a whole bunch for joining us today. Um, appreciate everything and always appreciate your wisdom in the sports turf industry. Um, great to have you with us. Well, it's great having colleagues like you guys. And it's always fun to, to chat and go back and forth. You give me insights. I provide some information and uh, it's a good, it's a good group. That's the first thing I figured out when I got into sports fields was I love the people. Um, and so I think uh, it's, it's a nice tight collegial group and, uh, and I love interacting with all of you. So Good yeah, so you're so you're saying that now, but we haven't thrown you our three strikes and you're out yet. Oh, um, no. So our listeners are used to hearing this, um, but I've got three questions for you that we call three strikes. 
Um, I'm going to give them to you one at a time. So you have a little chance to think about them um, and, and we'll see how, see how he does here listeners. All right. So Andy, if you had the opportunity to start a secret society, what would it be? Um, the secret society of scotch lovers. <laughs> I knew somehow scotch was going to be involved with that society. Uh, we've uh, we've we've actually been to Scotland with you, and um, we I've I've learned a lot about scotch from you. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. We, just had a, we just had a, I had a tasting last night for Jacob Kowski and his brother, so it's on my mind. Yeah, yeah. Taste it. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's strike one. Strike two, or the p- second pitch. What would be the best and the worst? Buy one, get one free offer that anybody could offer you. Uh, you think these are bad? Wait till you hear the third one. Yeah, I know that's tough to come up with something that's you know creative and fun. Um, that we can share with your listeners, <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> Gee, I don't know how long do I get to think about this? Um, your time's running down now. Yeah, I don't know. My best one would be uh, um, my wife. Buy one, get one free. That would be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's that's a good answer. <laughs> right. And uh, the worst one would be. Um, well, it's on my mind, so it's stupid, but I'm going to say an old tractor because I have one and it's broken all the time. So if I had two of them, then it'd be twice as many repairs. <laughs> Very good. Very good. That's strike two. The third stri- the third pitch I've got for you is one that you won't have to think a whole lot about, but I can kind of think about where this answer is going already, knowing you like I do. If your five-year-old self suddenly found themselves inhabiting your current body, what would your five-year-old self do first? Uh, first. I think long term, long term would be, you know, curb my well, eating you- and drinking habits so I didn't get fat by the time I was 60. But, uh, <laughs> short term, what would I do first? Um, run like the breeze out through the yard, you know, I just uh, light, fun, rolling, crazy running. Uh, I think that would be it. The longer it- term, I would say, let's figure out how not to become a, an old fat fart. Yeah. Well, we all we we all said we weren't going to be that guy, right? And, yeah, and, exactly. And and here we both are killing it. <laughs> uh, oh wow! How's that? Say, how about how about one question that I, I've occasionally asked folks? And if you could put and take take geographic location out of this, but if you could have your lawn be any type of grass that you could that you would. And take out all the, the management aspects, but just your favorite type of grass that you would like to have in your lawn. Well, it depends on your other caveats, but uh, I think I would go tall fescue because it's easy to take care of. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I don't want a bent grass lawn. Um, I've never really managed Bermuda at any great degree. No, I said, take out all the management aspects. Just if you, if you know, your fate, just a grass, oh, you don't have grass? to, yeah, you don't have to mow it. You don't have to do nothing, but you okay. get to go out and walk on it. So it has to be my lawn or is it just like my favorite grass? I think hard fescue, <laughs> I think hard fescue is my favorite grass. I have a whole yeah. bunch of hard fescue planted on steep banks around my pond. 
other than it's slippery on those steep banks. What a great grass. Uh, I just like it. Cool. So there, I, my answer my answer to that's a little different. I say moss. That way I don't have to do anything to it. Um, yeah, but, hey, Jeff. Hey, yeah. Hey, Jeff. One point. Moss isn't a grass. I, I was going to say that's the that's where we that's where we always get Tanner and I always get hung up. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think hard fescue. I think that's a cool grass. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, Andy, it's been great having you on the show. Um, I will remind our listeners that we can be reached um, at our email address, freshcutgrass at psu.edu. If you have questions or you have an episode that you would like for us to address, um, that's where we can be reached. Again, freshcutgrass at psu.edu. It's been great having you. Tanner, anything to end us with? No, that was fantastic. And thanks, Andy. Hey, thank you guys. I enjoyed it a lot. We will see our see you next week um, on our fresh cut grass. Thanks for being with us today.